This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello. Today in the Loopcast, I have Zach Dorfman, a national security and intelligence reporter at Yahoo, uh, probably one of the most uh, kind of in my top 10 of reporters that I've been wanting to talk to about uh, intelligence and national security. Um, so before we get into the show and the conversation, I had some difficulty kind of creating this show. Um, and that's largely related to the conflict in Ukraine and Russia. And I think what we're going to do today, our approach today is going to be broad. We're going to talk about the world of intelligence, what is new, what is old, what is on repeat. Um, we're going to, we might touch, I have it in my questions, we might touch on Ukraine and Russia. Um, but I think what, what Chelsea and I kind of agreed to is that uh, the Ukrainian Russian conflict um, deserves its own show and its own treatment. There's so much to go into. There's so much to deep dive that, um, that it, we would have to kind of devote a whole show to it. So that's what we're going to do. But for today, we're going to talk about the world of intelligence. Um, and with that, uh, please welcome my guest, Zach Torfman. How's it going? It's going great. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Um, so I want to start with a really broad question. And that question is uh, world building. So um, where are we today in intelligence? What is what does the intelligence world look like in 2022, especially sort of coming out of the Cold War or, excuse me, you know, going from the Cold War to the war on terror to now? What is what is the world of intelligence look like today? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's absolutely a world building one in terms of its, um, its scale. Uh, if you're talking about the U.S. intelligence community, you know, I think what you've seen is a kind of return to the focus on great power conflict and on uh, collecting on and interpreting and analyzing and seeking to understand the plans and intentions of, you know, big adversarial nation states, right? Um, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea. Um, it, it's one of those things where that, that never stopped, right? I mean, it's not like that was never a focus, but the war on terror uh, really sucked up a tremendous amount of attention and resources um, from obviously late 2001 until... Um, I mean, even through the mid 2010s. And I think, you know, you, you just said that um, you, you're going to have to devote an entirely separate show to Ukraine. And I think that's very, very smart. But I will say that, you know, if you're looking to periodize things, you know, almost like a historian would, you know, you could look back at 2014, rightly, I think, from within the intelligence community. And I've, I've done some reporting 
to support this. So this isn't just my own, you know, um, my own best guess that there was a real wake up moment by, by then, by Russia's invasion of Crimea, its annexation of Crimea, its support for the uh, pro-Russia insurgents and the breakaway republics in Ukraine's east, where the US intelligence community, after spending nearly 15 years focused on counterterrorism um, and non-state actors, realized that they got caught um, with their pants down, um, which is actually a phrase that a former senior agency official used with me. Um, and he used it specifically in the context of working in an environment where you were uh, across a line of control from Russian troops who had you know, surveillance capabilities and interception capabilities that the Taliban didn't. So this was a, in a paramilitary context, but you could, you could extrapolate outward from that, which is just that, you know, those skills, the skills necessary in the intelligence world to really think about the capabilities of a sophisticated adversary like Russia in 2014 or China in 2011 and 2012 when the Chinese intelligence services rolled up a big network of CIA assets in country um, because the agency was using internet-based covert communications. Um, a system, by the way, that was ported over from war zones in the Middle East. So again, you're seeing, you know, you're seeing by 2011, 2012, 2013, 2014, this shift slow, um, in, you know, incomplete, but evolving understanding that there were just certain things that were not going to work um, and you could not port over some of the skills um, from the CT world into the world of uh, nation states and nation state spying. And I think, you know, we are just coming out conceptually of the kind of war on terror era in that way. You know, there's always a hangover, right? There's always a period in which that understanding exists and you have people that, you know, within the IC and the wild saying, we need to focus on this next problem. We need to focus on this next problem, but the wheels of government move slowly and the IC is a bureaucracy like any other. And I think that there were folks who are worried for a long time about that. And some very bad things came to pass like the asset rollups in China and then also in Iran, I should mention around the same time. Um, and again, um, I know you said that you weren't necessarily going to try to focus on Ukraine, but you know, I can tell you for a fact that you know the the IC's analytic core around Russia around 2014 was surprised to an extent about Putin's decision to invade Crimea. Many people didn't think he was going to do it, and in fact, I can also say that there was a lag in intelligence because the satellites to do the kind of interception imagery intelligence that were necessary to see what was going on in Ukraine were arrayed over the Middle East. You know, I, I can't think of a better example than that, right? Because it's literally, you know, uh, physical infrastructure pointing to one region focused on one thing when you have this other great, exceedingly serious 
event from a traditional American adversary percolating upward, but you don't even have the infrastructure there anymore that you used to. Things have attenuated. And I heard that from intelligence community officials that, you know, the, the skill set, the muscle memory had uh, attenuated over time. And those, take, those things take time to build up. So you've kind of you've kind of given us 2011, 2012, 2014 as the starting point, as the chronological starting point, if you will. Um, what do you see as the defining feature? I mean, I think you've already touched on the tension between mm. counterterrorism and uh, state adversaries, but are there any other defining features of of this era, or is it or is that kind of transition from counterterrorism to state intelligence gathering kind of the big one? I mean, that's one of the big ones. I think thematically you can't, I mean, once again, I mean, again, there were always people who were always working on Russia and China and Iran. I don't want to give the impression that wasn't happening, but the focus away from counterterrorism and back to uh, spying on, um, on uh, you know host- major hostile powers, you know, as as folks within the national security world would call it, um, was one big shift. The other one, and I've written about this a little bit, and others have as well, is you know the a world in which there's ubiquitous digital trails, <laughs> and where um, the 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 practice and craft of of spying and particularly human intelligence has been transformed and where the volume of data available to spy services um, in order to pick out anomalies, in order to create dossiers on individuals, uh, in order to surveil entire populations, uh, it was incomprehensible, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. That's been utterly transformative. Um, And that is something that the US intelligence community and certainly other foreign intelligence services, particularly uh, China's intelligence services have been very, very focused on. Um, so in this conception, uh, when, we, when we, we sort of thinking about collections operations and the volume of data, where do we put like Facebook, Google, Twitter, because you, I, I like the idea that, you know, our, our current modernity starts in 2011, 2012, um, because that is when social media begins to really take off. You know, it's not just, um, you know, I think you had the, the green movement in 2008, 2009, mm-hmm. but then kind of the Arab Spring, and then domestically in the United States, you had Gamergate and all that. But you know, from an intelligence perspective, how do we think about the rise of, of these kind of mega corporations, right? That like Google has its incredibly impressive collection apparatus. So does Facebook. Yeah. Um, you know, how, how do we sort of conceptualize and think about their roles? I mean, as you, I think, smartly said, they are massive collection apparatuses, if that's the appropriate plural. Um, they are if I were, if I were foreign state intelligence services, uh, I would make it a priority 
to have either technical access to those platforms or to in fact insert or um or try to um uh recruit people within them uh and i mean we have an example with twitter um where there was a person who was allegedly working on behalf of the Saudi intelligence services um, in order to gather up information about Saudi dissidents. So, you know, the whole world is on these platforms and they are incredible, um, they are incredible tools to understand human behavior, um, but they're also incredible tools to carry out you know, what spy service is called operational acts, right? I mean, like, you know, if you want to signal to somebody about meeting in a certain place or a certain time, depending on the environment, you know, you having a special, uh, a special device or a special bespoke piece of software on your cell phone that if the security services in your country find, they know that immediately that something is up and that you might in fact not be working for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, <laughs> as you say, or and you, but you might be somebody else entirely, or you might be working for a different country entirely. Um, you know, that's, that's a danger, right? You wanna blend in with the noise, right? You don't wanna be a signal. Um, and social media platforms allow spy services to create systems of communication that appear uh, indistinct from the rest of the noise, but are becoming more and more integral to how they do their work. So it's actually, you know, everything is happening on these platforms. Um, and you are seeing spy services hiding in plain sight. Um, and I think that's really fascinating, right? Like that's really different. Uh, I don't think you could, you could make a good case that that was happening the same way in the pre-digital era. I think that social media has created a new espionage ecosystem and it is forcing people to think creatively about their tradecraft. And I think that's not necessarily good or bad. It's just, um, it, it speaks to the adaptability of the profession. Um, and it also, I think, speaks to the, the sense that some have that, and I think, it's a, I think it's false, that human is dead or dying or impossible in the current era. Because I think what you've seen is people doing really creative things um, to signal, um, transmit information and signal times and places of meetings and that kind of stuff. So I don't know if I answered your question, uh, to be honest, but I think that it's really, really hard to talk about. And of course you have, you know, you have um, spy services using some of these platforms for command and control for like cyber operations too, right? So it's, it actually becomes functionally part of state's intelligence apparatus too. So there's all kinds of stuff. Something that the term, I really like the idea of a espionage ecosystem um, yeah I, i've never thought about it like that and like conceptualizing facebook and twitter and google's roles 
and I, I picked these three specifically because they seem to be the ones who most actively kind of, I, I don't know what the term is, so I'll just kind of use the strongest term possible here, adversarial, right? They're sort of actively, you know, um, you know, describing the campaign that happened in 2016 or outing uh, efforts to hack activists. So I, I, I guess my question is, you know, how do we regard these, these corporations, you know, when they kind of behave almost like adversarial intelligence agencies, um, you know, it, you know, obviously they don't have the power or the sort of legal underpinnings that the CIA or NSA have, but uh, some of their work has been kind of, kind of mind blowing, especially, you know, in regard to 2016 to hackers, et cetera. I think that they're enormously powerful. Um, I, I'm not a tech reporter. I don't know the internal dynamics of these companies particularly well. And I, but I do think that there was a clear understanding, particularly after 2016, particularly regarding Facebook, about the power that they held over their users. Um, I mean, I want to back up for a second, right? And just talk about this ecosystem, because I think it's, it's important to kind of like just dwell on this for a second. For a second, these platforms and Google in particular, search engines in particular, they are just like they are transmutations of human desire, right? Like they are they are a a method or a mode for us to get things that we want or desire or fear. Like they they, they show how human beings are reacting to things in real time. They show how human beings experience joy and pleasure and fear and envy and how that can be cut up and characterized and boxed by geographic regions, by you know, ethnic denomination, by age, by, by sex, by, uh, I mean, they offer a vast, vast fortune um, of information, which is one of the reasons why people are so uncomfortable with the power that they have, right? Because they are collection platforms, right? They are some of the greatest collection platforms in human history, arguably the greatest collection platforms in human history, uh, to the point where I've had all these conversations with you know, former intelligence personnel, and they're just like, hey, people get so up in arms about what the NSA can do and what the USIC can collect on, and they just give away everything to private companies. You know, there's a legal, there's legal architecture that prevents people from having their information just hoovered up by the federal government, but there's no such protection. You know, it's, it's TOS, it's terms of service. That's the only thing between you and whatever collection mechanism, the social media platform that you're using is, right? Once you have assented to the terms of service, that's it, baby. You know, <laughs> like there's... You know, there might be some basic legal architecture um, about things, you know, privacy issues, but like overall in the US, it's a very, um, 
there is a paucity of regulation. Again, I'm not a tech reporter, but that's my understanding, particularly compared to the Europeans. Now, I think GDPR or whatever it is, is has created much stronger privacy protections for the Europeans than we have. So, you know, there's both thinking about the platforms as or the, the social media networks or platforms as in, intelligence collection platforms on their own terms. And then there's the ways in which they can assist spy services if they have access to that information in theory to do all kinds of stuff, right? I mean, you could, under, you could, you could seek to understand the emotional mood of entire nation states, right? In theory, you could do this. Or you could also find out about what a handful of people are thinking and caring about at any given time, right? Like if, if I were a target of a state intelligence service, say I was a target of the, <laughs> name any government with formidable, you know, with, with a, you know, kind of top tier intelligence services, right? And they have access to my social media usage. They can find out all kinds of things about me, obviously, but things that you wouldn't necessarily think would be useful to understanding or to recruiting somebody, right? So they find out that I'm having foot problems, right? So I'm looking up, podi I'm looking up podiatrists near me. And then they facilitate a chance meeting, what they call like a bump, where somebody that I haven't seen in 15 years comes up to me on the street and says, hey, Zach, so great to see you. And all of a sudden, I'm so excited because I haven't seen my friend in 15 years. I haven't seen this, this um, acquaintance that I have in 15 years, right? And then there's all these different ways where you can turn little seemingly unrelated things in people's lives as opportunities for further collection or recruitment. So it becomes part of this kind of like integrated whole where, you know, not to get too dystopian about it, but you can theoretically, um, you know, when they talk about covert action, let me put it this way, covert action, right? So the idea of like this hidden hand. And we tend to think about it in really big or broad terms, right? Like the CIA ran a arms program for the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, right? It was a secret arms program, right? It's covert action, it's big, it's hidden hand. We don't tend to think about it in the kind of micro terms, right? Like the idea that there are spy agencies that are subtly altering or shifting people's lives in ways that are imperceptible to them and will never be perceptible to them. Um, and that is being facilitated partially through access to all these different pieces of granular data that they have um, assembled and plotted out. And again, I'm not trying to, this, is, this does not sound conspiratorial. I'm far from it. This is based, based partially from conversations I've had with people in this space, but it, it does, it's both disquieting and a little bit like awe-inspiring <laughs> at the same time, um, because it, it is, it is um, a kind of brilliant and a little bit um, uh, a kind of terrible form of manipulation of human beings um, that again is made possible by the 
kind of technological interconnectedness of people and probably wasn't possible in the pre-digital era because there just wasn't that much data on people, right? It was much, much harder to understand people's needs and wants and fears and desires when, you know, you needed to rely on conversations with their acquaintances, or maybe you would get access to their mail, or maybe you would even tap their phone. But we are so, our underbelly is so much softer now because of the way that we live our lives. I mean, we can, we can even make this more horrifying and say, and bring in, you know, the breach of Anthem, OPM, Equifax, right. Right. and there's kind of widen our, our sort of lens from just not just social media, but kind of every facet of our lives, like, you know, um, insurance, uh, bureaucracy, and then Equifax, so a credit agency. Um, that, that's just kind of blowing my mind because, you know, like these huge collection apparatuses, it almost seems like, um, let me, let me ask a more theoretical question. How does the, you know, all that collection, how is it translating into counterintelligence? So n- not just the, the recruitment of agents, but mm. kind of the foiling of collection from a rival agency. Oh man, that's a great question. Let me think about that for a second. Um, Well, I mean, think about it this way, right? Um, imagine if I were, uh, let's say I'm the, I'm the Chinese and I, I hacked Marriott, right? And I knew that a bunch of, uh, it, I had a theory that different intelligence officers had used Marriott's in the past to commit operational acts abroad, right? To meet with their sources abroad in third countries. Um, and then I also hacked... Um, let's say I also hacked an airline company, right? And I knew that, um, you know, that because spy company, spy, uh, spy services are bureaucracies, right? So it's like people use the same airline, right? And they have, uh, they have a rewards program, right? Because people, you know, people love their rewards. Um, although my understanding is that a lot of, a lot of intelligence officials are not allowed to fly first class. I think that's true. I have to double check that, but I think that there's, there's something about that, the difficulties there. But, um, you know, you could run certain patterns through databases, right, to see who was in certain countries at certain times. And, you, and you, let's say that you say, well, you know, every time, you know, nuclear scientist A left our country, and stayed in city B, this other guy from the United States uh, flew United to that city or maybe a city that's an hour away and stayed at a nearby Marriott. And you say, okay, well, that happened once. Okay, that's just an anomaly. It happened twice, now my eyebrows are perking up. It happened three times, now you got a problem, right? So there are ways in which you can you find what things are coincidences and what aren't by uh, extrapolation and by certain indicators. And you can do that through access to, you know, 
multiple databases that you collate. And this is that example that I gave you is an example from what the suspicion of the US intelligence community was about what China was doing, right? Like that's an actual example. And, and that's, a, you know, that's something that was that the Chinese came to around the time that we started talking about this. You know, this is, this is you know, 12, 13, 14, 15, right? This is the Chinese intelligence services understanding that access to multiple overlapping data sets of key indicators of people's lives um, was a way to find, again, going back to the, the first question, to find the signal in all that noise out there, to find those coincidences that aren't. And it's an incredibly powerful tool, especially when you have that data analytic capability, right? That the US has, that the Chinese have. Um, and that has also been really transformative, right? Because then you have to think through all that stuff, right? And I'm not saying that, you know, the spy services in the Cold War didn't have to think through ensuring that they didn't appear too obvious in their actions. You know, there were there was a lot of um, attention to operational art then too, uh, especially in what they called denied areas, right? Like Moscow. But you didn't need to think about every single thing you did having a trail the same way. And, you know, you used to need to, okay, here's another example. You know, I had a former agency uh, CIA guy say to me, you know, we used to, you know, in every country we would, we would try to recruit somebody from the telecom service, right? You know, that was just something you did. You needed access to that data, right? Well, okay. Maybe they still do that. I don't know. Telecom services are incredibly valuable. <laughs> um, but a lot of that data isn't as localized anymore as it used to be, right? And cyber operations give you the capability to do that from afar. And then, of course, having this, the ability to process and work up and analyze data at scale, that's also something that has been transformative and um, very complicating for uh, intelligence agencies worldwide. Uh, I had a former senior agency official who worked a lot on this problem. This was something that he really devoted the last piece of his time in the community toward say to me, you know, the changes. And he actually is a bit of a, he would, he would characterize himself as this. So I'm not saying he would characterize himself as almost like an outlier because he actually believes that human as we know, it is dead to an extent. And, you know, he, he said to me once, this is like climate change. It's happening. This transformation it is occurring. It has occurred. Some people might be denying it, but just because you deny it doesn't mean it's not true. And that, um, that analogy has always stuck with me because uh, it you know, it's like this inexorable force, right? Now, people are obviously trying to blunt the worst effects of climate change. And I think maybe that's a good, that's also a good metaphor, right? Because, you know, you can't stop it entirely, but you can seek to blunt its effects. And most people within the IC that I know and have spoken to about this think the same, right? Like, you can't pretend like it's 1993, right? <laughs> but you can seek to try and work within the new constraints and, you know, try to uh, 
to find those new opportunities as well. This idea of constraints is kind of like I think about it a lot because uh, for one, uh, facial recognition is constantly getting better. Like we think about, um, I think the most provocative example or the most public is like Clearview AI um, that's kind of has this really good detection rate. But I also think like how much facial recognition is in everyone's daily life. So for instance, like uh, if I take a walk down Colfax here in Denver, so from, you know, just like maybe 10 blocks, right? In that 10 blocks, there's five cameras, each one of them, you know, it's, you know, you have to kind of assume it's, you know, doing some rudimentary, you know, facial recognition. And so, you know, that's just in civilian life. And I, I kind of think about like how much of this is, you know, being used by the security services and how, how constraining it is. Like what, for instance, like when you go to your sources within uh, the intelligence community, what is their thoughts on facial recognition, on gate recognition? Is it, is it something that's really horrifying? <laughs> I mean, I think it's incredibly complicating, right? Uh, you used to be able to just travel under assumed names, right? Like you have people be like, oh yeah, in the 80s and 90s, I had a safe you know, at the CIA station in, you know, Vienna. I'm just making it. And I had three passports in it with three different names. Like, you just can't do that anymore, right? Those are out, that's out the window, it's gone, right? Like, true name work is, is largely the, the only option left to people. Um, Facial recognition, gate recognition, all that stuff makes doing this work that spy services do more difficult. It doesn't make it impossible though, right? So, you know, for instance, you know, I, I heard a really interesting example about this once, which was, okay, you're in an environment that, you know, let me back up for a second. What it means in, in practice for a lot of this, especially with, with humans, is that there's no such thing as humans that is not like cyber supported to an extent, right? Or SIGINT supported. And by that, I mean, let's say you're in a city in central China and it's a city that has a lot of CCTV, right? And there's a lot of surveillance everywhere and there's facial recognition and there's all kinds of stuff. So you're trying to, you're flying into the country because you know it's a little bit easier sometimes to meet with people or to get information when you're not already in the country, when they don't already have a huge dossier on you, when you're actually not associated with the US government period, right? You're not under diplomatic cover, you're not under, you have, you're there as a business person. And you're there for a very specific purpose. You're there to literally walk down a street at a specific time and somebody who you know is going to be wearing a green hat is coming the other way for something called a brush pass, right? And they're going to just hand you a thumb drive 
you might not even know what's on it. You might not even know who this person is, right? There's sometimes the less you know in this case is a little bit better. You just know you have to do this. There might be an operation that takes place that let's say the US intelligence community had surreptitious access to that CCTV system in that mid-sized city in central China. You might be able to take the specific cameras down in the specific places within a minute or two of that very, very, very instantaneous transmission of physical data between the source and the visiting business person who's actually a CIA officer, right? So again, complicating, right? Like it's not like brush passes were ever easy in denied areas, right? It was always really hard. It was always really dangerous. If you read any of the Cold War, you know, the reporting on Cold War meetups between sources and their intelligence and their handlers in, in Moscow, it's like your heart beats so fast. But the technical aspect is always present. There's always, the way I understand it now is that there's always going to be a team of people supporting the physical act, right? You're going to have more people supporting you on the technical end than the people who are actually engaged in the physical meeting between people. And so I think that's like a, I don't know, that's, I mean, I think that's a pretty profound transformation. And, but I think that, I think that good intelligence services are, are aware of it. I mean, the other thing is it's like, yeah, it's pretty scary for people. I mean, I've heard stories from former agency guys who are retired and weren't doing anything and they weren't there for any kind of operational reason. And they like, I don't know, flew into, let's just say De Gaulle, right? Where we have a good relationship with the French intelligence services, the DGSE, um, but there's always been a little bit of friendly friction, you know, uh, it's not MI6, right? It's not like there's a little bit more friction. Um, and somebody walks through, you know, this, you know, ex agency official walks through the gates and like makes a phone call, like, you know, takes out their phone, calls their wife to be like, I landed. Um, and then somebody walks up to them in two minutes and says, can you please come with me, sir? You know, like that, <laughs> um, you know, whether, it was because of the phone call, whether it was because of facial recognition, whether it was because their name set off a bell. I don't know in this story. Um, but the, the moral of the story is that it could have been any of those things at this point, right? It could have been any of those things. And this person wasn't doing anything. They were literally there, I think, on vacation or business or, um, and I'm not even saying it was, it was Paris, but it's just, it has made things much more difficult, but it's also, again, it provides opportunities because we're thinking about this as only existing in authoritarian environments. But I think that the city, my understanding is that the city with the most CCTV cameras in the world, like block by block is London, right? Which is like nobody's idea of, you know, uh, dystopian authoritarian city. Um, it's a lovely city. Uh, so 
these are things that democratic societies are going to have to grapple with as well, which is like, as their capability for ubiquitous surveillance increases, how will it be used? And, you know, what are the limitations? What are the ethical limitations on it? So something, another phrase that I found kind of fascinating was cyber assisted or cyber supported humans. And I, I think in my own world building, I have sort of the, the offensive and defensive sort of information security so separate from human, right? It just human almost seems alien to me of somebody being in the field. And it almost like that phrase almost implies that like cyber is beginning to color everything within the intelligence field, right? So if you, if you have this incredibly digitized world, right? And so cybersecurity, you know, both offensive and defensive becomes more important. So how much of what we understand of intelligence work is being not taken over, but I think colored is the, the sort of kind of description that I'm looking for that there's, you know, almost always a cyber component to it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's inseparable. I think you nailed it. Um, I mean, kind of in a jokey way, I like to refer to, um, I like to refer to it as like espionage with cyber characteristics, you know, because there's this odd way in which the world of cyber operations and cybersecurity um, have been um, unnaturally cleaved from the wider world of espionage, right? I mean, it's like, it's a tool, it's a, it's a domain. I don't know how to describe it. It's also a minefield. God, it's a minefield to talk about um, because, you know, people that work in this space are um, often very smart and also very opinionated. Um, and uh, I'm always quite worried about <laughs> like literally stepping on, um, stepping on a, a kind of a, a terminological mine. Um, but I mean, I don't know what else to say other than it is, uh, it is entirely inseparable from it um, at this point. And I don't even think the most dyed in the wool humanter, you know, the person that believes uh, to their to the marrow of their of their bone that you know the heart of spying is people talking to people and recruiting people and developing relationships with people and you know learning things from people who have access and placement. Uh, I don't even think those people, if they exist, and I'm just making that person up, um, would argue that they can separate what they do from you know, the world of cyber espionage for all the reasons that we already talked about, right? Where it's, it's part and parcel of the process, the entire recruit, you know, the, from the recruiting aspect uh, to the operational aspects, um, to surveillance. To, I mean, it's like, I can't, yeah, it's, it's hard for me to think of any specific example where there would not be, that component would not come in somewhere. Um, and in fact, again, where the, the, hu the human aspect or the human aspect of the profession would not rely on um, 
on people with those type of technical skills. That's fascinating. Um, so will we, uh, so this is the last question on humans. Um, is there a generational tension or divide? Um, so I, I don't just mean that like boomers and millennials, oh, <laughs> uh, you yeah. know, the, the kids with their memes and whatnot, but like, like the tension of, so this is going to be a really personal example. Like I turned 18 on 9-11. Uh, a lot of my col- high school and college class uh, went to serve in the DIA, NSA, et cetera. And a lot of their experience was dealing with the war on terror, right? So Afghanistan, mm-hmm. Iraq, Al-Qaeda, and then ISIS. Um, is, there, is there like a generational divide where you have the boomers have a large part of their experience is during the Cold War, the millennials are a large part of their experience is the war on terror, and then I don't know about the, the Zoomers, but is there a generational tension there? Boy, I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, it's hard because I can think of so many different. I can th- I can think of so many obvious counterexamples from people that I I know who who started in one place and went another, right? Or people that started. You know, you had a look. You had people who were hardcore Cold Warriors, right? Who were twenty years into a CIA career, who. Uh, 9-11 happened and they became, you know, war on terror, just go, 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 right? They switched, people just switched. You know, I just, they, 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 they rose to the moment or, you know, they adapted themselves quickly to the new priorities of the era you know, to put a little bit of a different spin on it. Some did a really good job of that, adapting to it. Others less so, right? Um, And so, you know, you had a cadre of people who quickly understood where, and this is the, okay, this is the slightly cynical way of looking at it, right? I think both are true at the same time, okay? So the cynical way of looking at it is, just to be, just to be blunt, is that people realize where the money and the influence was going, right? And so they were like, all right, I'm a CT specialist now. I got to do CT, right? And for many, many, many years, I, you know, I, I have heard, and I think the, the record bears out, it was hard to be promoted within parts of the IC unless you worked on CT, right? That's where the focus was, right? You had the Cheney 1% doctrine, right? Like this idea that, you know, we would have to basically, we could scour the end of the earth basically to prevent a terrorist attack on US soil. Uh, that's a slightly cynical take. I don't think it's wrong. I just think it's part of the story. The other part of the story is that you actually had people who spent their career thinking about Russia or China or Iran or other places who were horrified and um, incensed by 9-11 and felt a deep sense of responsibility to work on that issue, you know, work on CT because it, you know, there, you know, it's, it's hard to remember now. Um, we're about the same age, 
um, we're almost exactly the same age, actually. And, you know, the, the visceral sense of fear, you know, the people who work in the you know, spies are spies are people too, you know, like they, they had the same thing, right? Um, not to mention the fact that, you know, the Pentagon itself was attacked, but I'm, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of the agency in particular. Um, so that's the, that's the more, um, that's the, uh, the, the, the more heroic interpretation of things. Not wrong. I think it's both, both at the same time. Um, so you had that going on. And then you had people who, you know, started working uh, as CT experts in their career in the post 9-11 space. And they spent years doing that. And then they moved to other things. That's a story too. That's happened. Um, and then you have people who, I don't know, were people who loved to, you know, they cared about one thing. They cared about, you know, Chinese history and they were wonderful linguists. And they knew that in 2004, or 2005, that it wasn't sexy to be a China analyst, but that's what they wanted to do. And they waited and they bided their time and they did their work and then things came around, right? And so that, you know, those stories are out there too. So I think, I think what you are seeing though is, and I think something that you identified, which is gonna be pretty interesting, actually, it's gonna be fascinating. It's gonna be absolutely fascinating is when the 9-11 generation of intelligence officers, when the people who were a little bit older than we were when 9-11 happened, who were in their early 20s or mid 20s or even maybe late 20s um, and were working in the intelligence world and spent their, the first 10 or 15 years of their career um, chasing terrorists, uh, when they start taking on positions of leadership, if they stay, because I need to add a caveat there, which is that unlike in the Cold War, when you had folks who just, they went into CIA when they were 22 and then they left when they were 52 and they never did anything else. People are not doing that anymore. Things have changed, uh, which is another interesting wrinkle to things. But let's stipulate that some folks will stay or they'll go out to the private sector and then they'll come back. But the generation that was young, that were digital natives, that spent the first part of their career fighting terrorism, analyzing terrorism, thinking about terrorism, dealing with the political fallout of some of the moral and the moral and political uh, excesses of the intelligence community, including not limited to, but including the torture of people, um, how they apply what they learned and the mistakes that were made, the mistakes that they made, I don't wanna put it passively, um, to uh, a world in which terrorism maybe isn't even priority number four or five, you know, where maybe that's where it is, you know, where they're thinking about traditional nation state issues. And maybe also there is a opportunity for the people that are still in the community right now who spent the 
beginning stages of their career thinking about terrorism and now are rising up in management and are having to really think about great power issues to go back and to find those women and men who may have retired in the early 2000s after working for 30 years on Soviet issues or on China issues. And like, I don't know, ask them some questions um, because that's the best way to learn. Talk to the people that did it. Things change, but also you had people that all they did was think about great power relations and the balance of, you know, the nuclear balance of power and, uh, you know, Russian culture. And there are brilliant, brilliant people, you know, within that world, people who spent their whole lives thinking of that stuff, people who loved the culture and like, you know, it, you know, analysts, a lot of analysts in particular are just like displaced academics. Right. And so there's a lot of wisdom out there that probably got, got some short shrift um, because in the late nineties, nobody really gave a shit. Right. Um, if you were like somebody who had 30 years of knowledge about the Soviet union and Russian culture, but now we could use some more of those people. Um, we could probably learn from them uh, and they might be older and they might not be up on contemporary aspects of Russia to the extent that people on the inside are, but I think people could learn from it too. So, uh, yeah, I mean, are there generation gaps? Definitely. Um, are there, have I heard of complaints, you know, from folks who are like elder millennials, for instance, about the way that the boomers perceive of certain, you know, aspects of, of their, you know, their craft? Absolutely. Um, but I think we're at the edge of a major transition too, because a lot of boomers are nearing 40, right? <laughs> like, so we're talking, I mean, a lot of uh, millennials are, uh, are nearing 40. So, you know, you have to think about, and I think this is a really smart question because you have to think about generational, I mean, again, uh, intelligence officers are people too, right? Like th these are people who come from the same cultural milieu as everybody else around them. And so we're starting to see what's going to happen when people who were born in the 1980s start ascending to more and more and more important positions within the intelligence bureaucracy. And I think that there's, it could be really interesting and also, you know, beneficial to those organizations um, because gerontocracy is um, the enemy of progress, right? I mean, not, I don't wanna say that, I don't mean to say that like in a kind of anti-elder uh, statement at all. I think there's, a, there's an immense amount of wisdom in accumulated experience. But I think as we've seen in other contexts in American life, gerontocracy can also be um, really damaging too. And I think you probably, that sense has probably also started to make its way through the IC as well. That's kind of kind of a neat thing. I, I think about knowledge retention a lot and learning, um, like, like mostly like <laughs> the 2016 campaign, um, the information operations, it was just, I was just like, oh, this is so cool to live through. This is so cool to witness, to learn about. And then I started reading Tom Ridd's Active Measures and I just slapped myself on the forehead. It was just like, oh, you know, <laughs> everything. Yeah, it is. It was just like, oh, everything. Yeah, shout, new. Out to, shout out to Tom. He's a, he's a great <laughs> scholar. Yeah. Um, I was just like, everything new is, everything old is new again and everything old is um, 
you know, the vice versa. But like, I, I think what you touched on is it's just like brilliant because it's just like, like there's so much learning and relearning of, of past lessons, um, particularly uh, with Russia. Um, and I, I think with that, I kind of want to segue into our, our next question, which is, it's going to be broad and, and you can sure. tackle it any way you want. Um, but how do we understand success and failure in this era, right? How do we, because by all, like, I, I kind of want to bring up 2016 because there was such a heated battle about mm-hmm. if, if this was actually successful, if this was just, you know, you know, the GRU and the troll factory just burning money, trying to influence the election. Um, but how do we how do we understand success and failure? If that's even a kind of an appropriate way to to think about it, even no, I think that's a good way of thinking about it. It's very hard. This is this this is a great question, and it's also an impossible question because it there's a subjectivity to it, even within the intelligence world, that I think makes it difficult to answer. And there's also the problem of compartmentation, right? So, you know, people will say, well, that, that mission was a failure. And then somebody, well, you know, you don't understand. There's this, you know, there's this deeper, deeper aspect to it. So over 20 years, you know, it's actually been very, very successful. What you see as a failure is in fact, you know, a, a long-term success in kind of influence operations. So this whole like wheels within wheels thing aspect to the, the world of, of, uh, of spying, particularly in the directorate of operations where there's like sometimes a sense that you never really quite know what the truth is, um, which can be uh, nightmarish for a reporter and also probably for accountability purposes internally. Um, but like, let me back up and say, you know, you brought up the 2016 active measures campaign. Let's just call it a covert action campaign, right? Because that's what it was, right? I mean, it was a covert action campaign. And I don't know how to conceive of it as anything other than an absolutely smashing success, right? I mean, especially if you think about it in terms of the financial expenditure, right? Like, so you get, you know, you, you know, you hack into uh, the, the network of a, uh, of a political party, right? And then you, you exfiltrate that data. Then you also hack into the uh, personal emails of a presidential advisor through just like the most basic ass phishing operation, right? (laughs) I mean, I don't know how else to put it. It was like not the most sophisticated operation in the world that got, you know, John Podesta. So then you exfiltrate this data. Then you have this like incredibly sensitive cache of information, which by the way, and I wanna, I think we, we should stop here for a second because what's really fascinating about this to me is that none of this information was governmental information. None of this information was classified information. This was pure political intelligence, right? Political parties, right? No, no institutional standing within the US government, right? So they hacked into private entities, exfiltrated the data, and then they created a persona to then release the data in dribs and drabs, and then also identified people that they thought would be useful to also release 
the data. Um, there's a really interesting side conversation that maybe we can have another time about the responsibilities in, of media when it comes to um, state hacked information and how journalists can become you know, unwitting co-optees in other states' intelligence operations. That's a very thorny question. But to just go back to the, the first one, right? Like, so you have a persona that's been created that then is strategically releasing pieces of completely unclassified, not even governmental data, right? Uh, that are highly incendiary and distract from other very derogatory uh, revelations about a presidential candidate that your country it has decided per the US intelligence community's assessment to um, weigh in on on the side of electing. That's very little investment for an incredibly big payoff, right? Um, and then in the process, and this is, this is actually something that I don't think has gotten discussed enough. Um, I've seen very, very little public discussion about it. Um, but then what you also have is a second order effect, which is the corrosive, corrosive influence of that covert action campaign on the American body politique which includes the American intelligence community, right? Like, I'll just keep going back, just like intelligence officers are, are, are people too. Like, I know, nonpartisan, truth to power, all of that shit, I get it. But they're people. <laughs> they're people with beliefs and hopes and desires and political leanings and fears and all that stuff, right? So then you get a divide that emerges within the government and the community to an extent where like they, they don't, they're people, right? They don't know how to react. I mean, they're trying to react in real time to something that seems like deeply disturbing about the, you know, a, a, a deeply disturbing event that's occurring in real time in the American political system and the stakes could not be higher, right? So I had a former agency official who was around at this time say to me, the real tragedy in this person's opinion was that the active, the Russian active measures campaign got into CIA itself. And what he meant by this was he was like, it created vast amounts of tension within CIA and vast amounts of fear and confusion. And for him, it was indicative of the success of that campaign, right? Because it wasn't just that the Russians had sowed dissension and created uh, a climate of instability and set American against American and in theory uh, helped elect somebody who was going to be more amenable to uh, pro-Kremlin positions. But if you're a Russian counterintelligence official, if you are thinking through the best case scenarios for you and the worst case scenarios for your number one enemy, which is the US, it's that, right? <laughs> you've created, you've created a instability within 
Langley itself, right? That's that to me is more than anything. Not like the rest of it isn't big. It's all, I mean, it was all extraordinarily successful in my opinion. But if you're thinking from the Russian perspective, like, wow, like <laughs> we hacked into a few things. We got incredibly valuable information that wasn't even like government information, wasn't even classified, wasn't even sensitive in, you know, in the way that we understand it. Um, you set up a persona, you throw up some, you know, deniable troll farms that then manipulate social media to, uh, to get that information in front of more people. And you actually get the candidate elected and, and you create all kinds of internal problems within the US intelligence and counterintelligence community, right? So like, there's one more aspect to this, right? The Trump presidency was many things, but one thing that occurred during the Trump presidency was actually what I think can be adequately described of as a purge of the FBI, right? So you have another effect, right? So you have, you have kind of like fear and loathing within Langley, and then you have an actual purge within the FBI where the, the FBI director is fired by the president. Uh, the FBI director... Uh, attacks a senior FBI counterintelligence official, you know, the FBI, the, uh, the president uh, attacks the deputy director of the FBI um, and the deputy director of the FBI at that point actually you know, almost faces criminal charges. It, when you think about it, if you were to think about all the second and third and fourth order effects um, and you were a senior Russian counterintelligence official. I mean, your, your, your legs are like up on your desk and you're like lighting the cigar and you have, you know, your like ex, you know, your, your special occasion glass of scotch. Like that's the way that I think you have to think about it. Um, and to like go back to something else that we talked about earlier, like that to me is like, that is evidence of the kind of like leveling power of uh, cyber operations to an extent, right? Because um, it shows that like with relatively little expenditure, they were able to, and I, I, I don't think I'm being hyperbolic. They were like literally, they were literally able to change the course of history, right? Um, so I think when looked at in those terms, um, it's an example. Um, it may be an infernal one, but uh, I think it will be studied for a very, very long time. And I would not be surprised if it were lessons from it were going to be applied offensively by the US or other countries that we consider allies. That's interesting. Something that really like sticks out for me uh, using 2016 as an example is the role of journalists. Um, and I don't mean to, to get spicy, but like, even, even if we kind of widen the circle and includes the Snowden leaks in 2012, 2013, you know, journalists and journalism, however defined, is playing a bigger role in these operations, whether, you know, consciously or unwittingly. Um, you know, how do, we, how do we think about journalism's relationship to to not only covering the IC, but also its relationship of, 
not relationship, responsibility of, you know, covering operations that are happening. Because like, I, I just like the most distinct memory I have of 2016 was how much coverage was put on, you know, uh, Podesta's risotto recipe or <laughs> yeah. just like, just like really mundane, like you wouldn't think they would be newsworthy to cover, but yet here they are kind of being splashed on the, the New York, the cover of the New York Times, the front page of the New York Times. This is a really great question. It's a really difficult question. I would, I would push back a little bit that it was not newsworthy, but the, I mean, fuck the risotto recipe. I'm not talking about the risotto recipe, but like that the Podesta emails and the DNC emails and the DCCC emails were not newsworthy. They were newsworthy. The source was rotten, but the actual information was newsworthy. Um, that said, it's like really difficult, right? Because you have to almost factor in the source of the material to an extent about when you think about, because you're talking about source motivation, right? Um, and source motivation is always, it is important to think about, but it's not necessarily dispositive, right? I mean, like bad, you know, dirty assets in the intelligence world exist, lots of them, right? So, you know, if somebody hates his boss and is passed up for a promotion, and then hands the CIA a bunch of incredibly sensitive information about the technical military research lab that he works for in China because of it, like the US is not going to not accept that information or seek to continue that relationship with that person because they're operating from a place of like, you know, I don't know, resentment or ego, right? Far from it. I mean, that's kind of what they do, right? You find people's vulnerabilities. Um, I think that journalists, the lesson of 2016 for journalists, one of the lessons for 2016, and I didn't cover those emails because I'm not a political reporter, right? I mean, I don't, I, I don't really care. I mean, I, I care as a, as a American and somebody who just cares about civic issues, but I, I don't care professionally about the internal workings of the DNC. Um, but I think it's important for journalists to foreground reporting that may involve, or in fact, be kind of handmaiden to a state intelligence services influence effort uh, or operation. I think it's important for us to make that as clear as we can and in, in as upfront way as we can, because I think one of the issues, and this is not just about stuff that comes from intelligence agencies, um, but, you know, sometimes we speak a quasi-private language in journalism that seems more focused on, it's more focused on picking up or transmitting certain signals that a very narrow group of people in Washington understand, right? People who professionally read between lines, but that doesn't actually benefit the American citizenry writ large. And so how do you write something really smart and something incisive 
within the conventions of journalism that also is plain to people and where they understand the larger issues at play. Um, and that isn't winking at people within the beltway who see the game for what it is, for lack of a better term, right? Because I hate thinking about it as a game because it's quite serious. Um, I think the other question that you had, uh, if I recall correctly, was about the responsibilities of doing national security reporting in a space where the topic is inherently sensitive. Is that right? Was that part of what you were asking? Yeah. So, I mean, part of that question, the source of that question is thinking about the Snowden leaks, thinking yeah. about uh, Glenn Greenwald and uh, Laura Poitras, I think that's her name. Like the argument they made at the time was very, it, it kind of hit, right? It was like, you know, there is a responsibility to, to surface, to make public these surveillance programs that are happening. But looking back in, from 2022 to that, to that period, it's like, well, you know, there's a lot of, you know, questionable gatekeeping that's happening. Like, you know, thinking about Glenn's role, for instance, it was, you know, the records weren't being made completely public. It almost seemed like he was drip dropping, kind of like, you know, for fame, attention, whatever his motivations are. So like the ethics of covering, you know, yeah. of national security, like where, not necessarily you, but where, where would that line get drawn, for instance? No, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, I can't speak to Glenn's motives. I think uh, obviously it's been, his career has taken a very interesting trajectory or journey. Um, and I think that I'm going to say something that if you have people from within the intelligence community, it's going to upset them. I think some of them, I know it'll upset some of, some of them and I know it won't others, but whatever you think of Edward Snowden, the programs that some of the programs that were reported on that came from the information that he took were inherently newsworthy. And there was no countervening argument in my mind that they should have been reported on responsibly. Um, the same went, by the way, for the WikiLeaks uh, Afghanistan war logs, right, in 2010. Like, and I want to separate, though, I want to separate that question from the question of the, the ethics of the person who, who uh, who provided journalists with that information, right? There's nice ways to say it. The nice way to say it is a whistleblower. You know, others might be, might say stole that information um, from the from the federal government, um, violated their oaths. I mean, like people characterize it in various ways, and I'm not going to characterize it here, um, but. I'll just say that I think that the decisions that were made insofar as we're talking about surveillance programs were absolutely within the bounds of what was newsworthy. Um, I, I can't go article for article because frankly, I've forgotten 
a lot of them. Um, I know there were some that people had specific issues with because they weren't necessarily about, you know, surveillance programs um, or government overreach. Um, but I think the broader question, and it's something that I think about a lot, is, you know, something very abstract and something that some people within the community, I think, would say is somewhat self-serving or self-aggrandizing, which is the idea of the public interest, right? And I don't think there is a clear test for it. Um, uh, there is an aspect, there are aspects to it that are, that are clear, like, you know, malfeasance, wrongdoing, accountability, um, uh, things that, uh, that reveal aspects of American foreign policy that, um, that an informed democratic citizenry should be aware of, right? So, you know, uh, I've had CIA officials say to me, you know, we're the secret wing of American foreign policy, right? That's what covert action is, right? Like you're making foreign policy. You're just not, you're, just be, you're secretly making foreign policy, right? So your stated policy is one thing and what you're actually doing is another thing. So you, the US government is interacting with the world in ways that it is uh, concealing from its own citizenry in a country that uh, has a democratic form of government. Now, people will say, well, that's necessary for, whole kind, for all kinds of reasons, and I agree, it is. Um, it's an important tool. But uh, some of the people who have argued the most strenuously to me about the abuses of covert action are people within the intelligence community, right? Because they'll say, and I find this persuasive, that instead of taking something, doing something overtly, which requires debate, consensus, congressional buy-in, um, the kind of sunlight that might have uh, effects on public perception, which will then lead to pushback, you know, and, and potential electoral effects. People just do stuff in secret. They just do stuff in secret because it's easier. I mean, frankly, it's like easier to do stuff in secret. You sign a finding, NSC goes to the NSC, you know, they sign a finding and then it's done. I'm not saying that's all covert action. I'm not saying that there isn't a, a role or, an, or a reason for covert action, but that does happen, right? And again, this is stuff that I've heard strenuously argued to me by people who spent their life in this space. So it's secret, right? Um, and every time I write about a, a secret US government program or something that was, you know, that was secret, uh, some people from within the community who I know are like, great job, you know, okay, um, this thing happened. Uh, other people inherently dislike it and they, you know, they get upset about something that was secret, that was, that is no longer secret. Um, two things. One is that sometimes the things that are secret to the American public are not secret to people, to the government that is the object of the covert action. So you have a weird situation where the American public isn't aware of something and 
let's say the American government is aware of something. And let's say this is directed at the Russian government. So, and the Russian government is aware of it. Well, then the only people who aren't aware of it is the American public. Well, the Russian people probably too, but like they um, very regrettably, you know, don't have the ability to um, pick their own government and they don't have a free media. It's gotten a lot less free in the last two weeks. So you have this really weird imbalance, right? And this is a real example I'm giving you. You know, this is a real example I'm giving you from reporting that I've done. Um, now folks might say, well, in fact, that's okay because you want something deniable, right? Like the Russians know that it's happening and we know it's happening, but everybody's saving face. You keep, you keep temperatures down, you deny things, right? You don't, you never acknowledge them. Um, but there's an inherent tension between a secret intelligence apparatus and a democratic society. It's a necessary tension. It's a productive tension. Um, I don't think, I think that intelligence services are integral to modern states. I think their goal is going to exist. I think they have legitimate and important uses. Um, but they sit at the edge and that edge can be very productive um, and very beneficial and benevolent, but it can also be malevolent and dark. Um, and so, you know, I view my job, and again, this is going to sound so self-aggrandizing to some people. I view my job in a very, very small way as among other things, which is also just educating people about stuff, hopefully, right? Like, stuff that they might not understand, but might care about, you know? Um, and it's not all about, it's far, I don't view my job as just like adversarial in the sense of like making intelligence agency look bad. That's not the way I look at it at all, but it is about transparency and accountability to an extent, right? Like for me, those are the bywords. Um, but, and this is a really long and probably rambling answer, but I think that I can say that I think very hard about the exposure of some of the things that I write about and about the complexities of it. But I also think that, and I do a fair amount of self-censorship, right? I mean, I hope people aren't shocked by this. I think people within the community understand that national security journalists get things in granular levels of detail that just aren't necessary for um, you know, uh, public good or public awareness, you know, like I'm not, you know, I, you don't just like take every detail you have all the time and you spill it out on, on, on the page because there's real world effects. You know, there are people who can be endangered. Um, and, but all that said, like, I think, I think that the job requires you to, um, edge towards transparency um, whenever and however you can um, responsibly, which again is something that some folks, but not a lot of folks, I mean, but not everybody, some within the, the you know, the world of American spy agencies um, view very, very dimly. Um, but I will also say that uh, I have people that I've known for years who lived in that world and 
you know, and they are, you know, they, some of the greatest defenders of this kind of journalism that I've ever met were people who came from that world. Um, and that to me has been um, uh, revelatory and um, like, this is gonna sound kind of sappy, but also inspirational because it makes me feel, it makes me understand the role of it and the purpose in it um, of, of doing journalism in this space. So on the, on the other side of things, how do we understand an organization like Bellingcat? So like, you know, Glenn and, and the Snowden Leaks kind of outed a lot of US stuff, but Bellingcat, you know, doxed, I mean, I, I don't know if, if dox is the, the fair, is the, the right word, but- I think it is. <laughs> their work on uh, the Skripal guys, if yeah. I'm remembering it correctly. So how do we sort of characterize Belling Cats? Not only their, their, their work, let's just say, let's just start there. How do we sort of characterize and understand their work within, within traditional journalism? That's such a great question too. Man, you've had some really good ones. Um, uh, you got my brain going on a lot of this stuff. Um, <laughs> Bellingcat is a, in a lot of ways, they're just like an open source intelligence agency, right? <laughs> I mean, they, they're journalists, right? And I don't want to be flip and I, and I, and I respect their work a lot. Um, and they do incredible stuff. In fact, they do stuff that I know for a fact, you know, I've, I've spoken to, you know, former, you know, Intel, U.S. intelligence officials that are just like, you know, those Bellingcat guys are ahead of us sometimes. <laughs> right like they actually i think are kind of like a master class in in certain ways about the the ability for um journalistic institutions to use what's in the open source to um blow intelligence personnel and intelligence operations and um However, um, and this isn't Bellingcat's fault, but I will say this, like you can make a moral argument for it, but all of the people who are like rah-rah about every time Bellingcat like exposes a Russian intelligence operation in Europe, like I think they would be fucking apoplectic if Bellingcat started turning its open source investigative capabilities onto Western intelligence services, right? And their argument would probably be that, you know, the Russians are um, antagonists, they're malevolent, they're doing things that were beyond the pale. They, you know, they, you know, you, you could make a case, right? You can make a good case for why uh, they, deserved what they, you know, that they, they deserve the, ex, the extent of the doxing <laughs> that the, the absolutely thorough obliteration of their tradecraft that Bellingcat put on display, right? I mean, it's just an embarrassment, right? Like what Bellingcat has been able to do, it, it either, it's, it shows one of two things, particularly with the GRU, right? It either shows that they're incompetent or that they don't care. Um, and I don't know what the right answer is. Some people think they just don't care. Um, but, you know, 
you have to think that somebody is getting yelled at or fired, you know, um, for being so sloppy all the time, which is what has allowed Bellingcat to be so successful. Um, but I do wonder about this idea that you only report on other intelligence services and uh, not the ones in your own country. Um, and I, I don't think that for me personally, that's not a defensible position. Um, I would, I, it's hard for me to think of the circumstance under which I would dox um, current USIC officials, you know, like that, that's really, really, I, it's a really, really hard thing to imagine rising to the level of like, necessity in a in a journalistic uh you know in in a in kind of mainstream journalism um really 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 hard i mean um because you are playing with people's lives um and i think that you have to be very 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 careful um with something like that um uh, it's not it's happened i mean there that stuff has happened before, but not every doxing is equal either, right? I mean, it's a whole side issue, but you know, the New York Times, for instance, has, you know, revealed the name of like names of, you know, like a high level CIA officer who was in a prominent counterterrorism uh, position and then in a prominent Iran position uh, within the CIA, with, you know, in the United States, his life wasn't in danger. Other people in his position had, in the past, had been uh, had their cover rolled back and so their names were publicly known but this person for whatever reason didn't have that happen so at some point the times just said you know we're naming this person because they're not in the field it's not disrupting a specific operation it's like a widely known secret it's an open secret um and so we're doing it and you know the agency got really angry um but <laughs> then nothing happened um, it's not in public, but um, anyhow, I mean, there are circumstances under which people's names should get revealed. That's that's my point. Um, but I think that it is that is a really sensitive area. Um, and if you really want to, like, you know, upset people within the community, that's an easy way to do it, right? Um, so again, I don't know. I mean, I find it. You know, it's it, it's a little curious to me um, the the avidity with which people uh, greet some of what Bellingcat does without thinking about how they would feel if, like, let's say there was a Russian Bellingcat that started that all of a sudden popped up, right? Let's just say that like there was a uh, you know, let's say, let's say it was state-backed, but of course it was deniably state-backed, right? So all of a sudden there was like a, you know, a, you know, a, a, a fake Bellingcat, let's say like a, like a Wario Bellingcat. So like Wellingcat, right? Um, that, that all of a sudden started, you know, uh, doxing CIA officers' names and um, operations uh, in Europe. People would lose it. People would absolutely lose it. Uh, they might lose it because they think they would say, "This is a, um, this is obviously a intelligence operation." Um, uh, the Russians think that about Bellingcat. I mean, I, 
I, I don't think that about Bellingcat whatsoever. Um, but um, the Russians think that that's what Bellingcat is doing because Bellingcat is disrupting, you know, I mean, Bellingcat is, is publishing things that if you were, you know, the head of the FSB, you would be like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, I mean, I think it, you would, you would, you know, the, the people, CI people are uh, paranoid by nature. And so, uh, you know, they're already, they're already going to assume that something has been, uh, you know, there's like a hidden hand of a state there, but like, you know, if, if an organization arose abroad uh, that was doing what Bellingcat is doing to us, I think it would be, um, I, I, I strain to think about, you know, the reaction here other than, you know, horror and, um, and uh, anger. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I think it, I think Bellingcat's a great example because I think it sits at the edge of uh, journalism in certain ways. Um, but it also points toward like the future of a certain kind of like national security and intelligence journalism, because some of their investigations are mind blowing. They're so good. Um, they're so thorough and they're so shocking and what they've been able to pull back um, because of the sloppiness again. And one thing that we, just to bring this back to something we talked about earlier too, um, part of it is because they're not backstopping well, right? You know, backstopping, like you got to create this identity um, this plausible identity. And so social media has created opportunities and challenges for creating covers and personality, right? You know, cover for action, cover for status. Um, and, you know, when you talk to folks within the US intelligence community, you know, you spend years and years and years sometimes doing this, you know, to create plausible covers for people. Um, even if they're operating under their true name. Um, but some of the GRU folks that, you know, the, you know, Bellingcat, uh, you know, exposed, you know, they backstopped for like 48 hours. I mean, they, <laughs> like, they just didn't do it that well. And, um, you know, to, to really make that work um, in, to make a lot of things work, if you want to stay you know, deniable um, in terms of what you're doing, you actually need to put that time in on those platforms. And that's not just, that's not just social media, by the way, that's also like you know, ancestry.com type places, right? Where you're creating, you're creating entire digital histories of people. So um, I think that's a big part of the story too. Um, and that's something that Bellingcat has been able to, um, to identify as a really rich quarry for doing intelligence journalism. That's fascinating to me because I think out of all the entities that we've named, uh, that we've discussed, Bellingcat's skill set, you know, obviously masterclass, right? Just living legends, but the skill set of Bellingcat seems to be very reproducible, right? So uh, anybody can really use Google or TinEye. Like those investigative tools can be used by anyone. And it's, I, I think a big theme of our show is that human intelligence in our current era is, is much more difficult. But at the same time, anybody can be their own collection shop. Like, <laughs> um, yeah. I, I, I think back to a conversation that uh, 
Seamus had, Seamus Hughes, uh, he's been on the show before about yeah, he's one, great. about one six, and about how you know the, the idea that the FBI had a lot of was able to geofence stuff in, uh, be able to recognize people pretty quickly. But then there's this theme of the sedition hunters, like literally normies on Twitter, yeah. just identifying people, running it through Tinai, running it through Facebook. Um, so, I mean, what, in, in your view, what is the implication of, of OSINT, of the ability to anybody can be their own collection and, and analysis shop, basically? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, huge. Uh, it was always looked at as a kind of like... Um... Uh, how do I say this in like a, <laughs> in a correct way? Um, it was always looked at as kind of like the, whatever, I'll say it. I'm a redhead. So it's like, the, it was like the redheaded stepchild of intelligence work. Um, and, you know, CIA put, created an OSINT, center um that was always i mean my understanding i don't know about today but you know historically was like always looked at as like a little bit um junior almost like you know kind of like little leagues compared to the real work that the real tough men and women did you know stealing secrets and um but like again i don't even know how you differentiate at this point because there's this proof the the proof is so overwhelming from outlets like Bellingcat and from those folks that Seamus was talking about who have been like on the trail of people um, for one six. Although I, I would just like add that there is a danger, right? Like amateur OSINT sleuths, you know, tracking people down and identifying them as X, Y, or Z. Like there's a dystopian vein to that right Where like the wrong person gets identified and then you know somebody with a lot of twitter followers like you know identifies them as somebody who was doing something on one six and then it's just you know because they share a name or they look similar and then like they get you know they get bombarded and harassed or even you know because people also are like um you know, there's responsible, I mean, not for me professionally, I can't do this, but like, there's like, you know, there's a, you know, there's responsible reporting to authorities. And then there's also like snitching <laughs> on people and people who I think uh, probably um, experience a certain kind of um, pleasure in, in that. Maybe they feel like it's, um, you know, that's positive, positive and retributive um, to people who have done wrong, you know, to wrongdoers, you know, but I, I do worry a little bit about the belief that, you know, because you're armed with um, Google dorking and Tenai, that you are, you can put on your OSINT cape and you can find the evildoers. Um, I don't want to take away from the people that are actually helping hunt down, you know, uh, folks who stormed the Capitol, but I think that there's danger there too. And, you know, 
we shouldn't just assume that things we now assume that inform that information is easy so we think information should be easy to find um, and that is true to an extent of course but there's also a lot of room for interpretation right or for misinterpretation um, and a lot of danger there because you know you have things like deep fakes too right and there's you know it is a sludgy information environment out there um, Again, not to draw back to Ukraine, but it's just hard to get off your, your mind. Um, you know, there's been a fire hose of information, but there's also been some disinformation out there. And there's obviously state-backed state influence operations, some of which are quite overt. Um, and so uh, OSINT, uh, you know, integral, necessary, inseparable from intelligence work, but also, um, uh, you know, there be dragons. It's kind of, it's just so fascinating that like, it's like we've built this world for collectors, but analysis and verification are still like in the old school way. Like there still has to be like, you know, you can set up this huge world of collection, of detailed collection, but you still have to have, you know, somebody sit there and pour over it, verify it, analyze it. And those two, and those two parts of intelligence work are kind of, I don't want to say old school, but haven't evolved as rapidly as collection. Is that, is that accurate? Or do you, is that something that's, you know, kind of missing a part of that. No, I mean, I think like, I mean, think about it this way, right? Um, and I'm just gonna stand up for the analysts for a second. Not that they need me to stand up for them, but um, collection is sexy, right? That's the action, right? Like you are, you're the guy parachuting into Northern Iraq before, uh, you know, before the invasion to set up um, you know, informant networks, you know, uh, you're the woman doing the brush pass in Tehran, uh, you know, you're, uh, you're the person who uh, has spent, you know, 10 years uh, cultivating somebody to to flip, um, thus giving the US government uh, unprecedented access into the plans and intentions of the Russian Ministry of Defense. You know, like that is like sexy shit, right? Like that is, when we think of spies, like that's really what we think about. Um, but I think that's unfair to the analysts <laughs> to an extent. Um, and maybe, maybe I'm, a, I mean, I'm actually, I don't even think I'm biased because I think that like, I, I too will find that's, I find the, the world of operators and collectors to be like absolutely like fascinating. Uh, but I think how, how could I mean, an intelligence service could not, is only as good as its analytic core, right? <laughs> it has to be that I, I don't see that. I, I can't see it being any other way, right? Because you need people who can, who can, interpret and create narrative coherence for you. And here I'm being self-interested, right? Because I think that the role of a journalist 
is we kind of do both, right? I, I resist the I resist the strict comparison between um, you know intelligence work and journalism because I think it is used as almost like a weapon against journalists sometimes about how we're really just we're like a lot like spies, right? And so that's why spy services have to be so you know you know fearful of us. Uh, I think we're very very different, but I do think that journalists have to take raw material to an extent and create narrative and intellectual coherence. And I think that analysts do that. And, you know, I have known analysts who are like some of the most brilliant people I've ever met. I mean, I can listen to those folks like talk forever. They're so smart because they're actually like, you know, I think of them as people who, you know, in the best cases are like incredibly well-read in uh, the history and literature and language of the places that they're focused on. And they have access to everything that I, if I had that skill set, would have access to. And then they have access, in theory, to a bunch of non-public uh, information that includes reporting from people within that government and um, reams and reams and reams of technical intercepts that then can create a fuller picture that reveals some kind of higher truth among the fragmented data that they are presented with that is then combined with the totality of their historical understanding and contextual understanding of that state or that actor. Um, and so, you know, the analyst's job, and there's probably people in fact, I know there are people who could speak to this much better than, than I, because I've never worked in the intelligence community and I never will. Um, but for all the changes that have occurred, you know, you still have, you know, that brilliant woman who, you know, got her PhD in, um, you know, in, uh, Persian, Persian studies at Harvard, right? <laughs> Who, like, that's what, you know, and then she, she becomes a, an analyst, right? Um, and like, it's not, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, we don't think of it as spy work the same way, but um, it's absolutely essential. And I'm going to keep doing this. And I know it, it probably is, um, a little annoying to you, but like to bring it to Ukraine again, you are seeing that play out in real time, right? You are seeing a, a case where the Russian services either had bad analysis or politicized analysis that led to a unfathomable miscalculation um, about the most consequential foreign policy decision anywhere that's been undertaken by any state in decades. In fact, I would argue pretty obviously since the Bush administration decided to invade Iraq. And it doesn't necessarily mean, it's not necessarily the case, obviously, that because you have a democratic society, you're not going to have analytic failures or politicization of intelligence. Again, I just mentioned Iraq. Um, but I think that a professional analytic core within a democratic society um, 
can provide a huge competitive advantage over authoritarian states when it comes to their intelligence services. And I think you're seeing that play out in real time in a big, big way in Russia. And I think, again, that it's easy to forget about the role that those folks play. Um, and, you know, yeah, they might be sitting at a desk. <laughs> so they're not dealing with, you know, the same kind of like tradecraft issues that the, you know, the, the operations folks are, but, um, you know, it's, it, it's, it's essential. So on the topic of Ukraine, I mean, it, it seems kind of interesting to me because on one hand, it, it's an uncritical success, right? The, the Biden administration is able to, to do public diplomacy, is able to sit, to constantly kind of iterate, you know, Russia is going to go invade, Russia is going to invade, be prepared. And, and, and they were ultimately correct. But at the other hand, like this, as an outsider, what I'm interpreting as kind of this overestimation of the Russian military of the, the FSB. I think uh, there's kind of two examples. Like one is, you know, the inability of the Russian military to maintain logistics, abandoned tanks, uh, fuel and food issues. And then the FSB kind of, you know, taking the billions of dollars it was given to create a network in Ukraine, but then like, you know, it's all kind of burnt up due to corruption or due to, you know, it was clearly not being used to establish a network or manipulate public opinion. So, you know, we're four weeks into this war, you know, what, what are your sort of preliminary understandings and takes of the conflict from an intelligence perspective? Uh, from, the, from the Russian side or from the U.S. side? Uh, both, both. I yeah. mean, whatever whatever side of the story you find more interesting, more important? Uh, I mean, I think there's, I mean, this war is in so many, I mean, there's so many fascinating intelligence issues. I mean, I think you mentioned that, I think Tom Red said something on Twitter that was like, shout out to Tom again, um, that he was kind of like, this is going to be studied. The intelligence aspects of this conflict are going to be studied and picked over for decades. And I, I wholeheartedly agree with his, uh, with his assessment. Uh, one thing that has been really fascinating that many have commented on is the Biden administration's um, declassification strategy. Um, now, I want to say that I also know for a fact that some of, that's, some of the stuff that's been in the public sphere was not necessarily um, part of the explicit strategy, right? So there was also unauthorized disclosures of information that got out there and that happens in these cases and I am in no way criticizing it because I think again, it's a lot of, there's a lot of important things that um, got out there. Um, but there was also a explicit, explicit strategy by the Biden administration to release information almost like as it was coming in about their collection on Russian plans and intentions regarding the invasion. I mean, they were, they were releasing incredibly detailed information about potential Russian false flag operations, you know, like the, the like staged attacks and stuff like that. Stuff that like, when I saw the level of detail, I was like, wow, that is amazing. You know, it's an amazing amount of detail that they released. And I don't know, I, 
uh, if they thought it was going to stop the war. But my bet is they probably thought that it was going to create difficulties for the Russians in terms of their um, rationalization for it in the public sphere. And they did. They really did. It was successful in that way. Um, and I think it, it also unified uh, the West uh, around, uh, it, even, though, even though folks said that the Biden, you know, the Biden administration, were, they were accused of being hysterical. They were right. I mean, they were 100% right. Uh, the US intelligence community was right about, you know, the, the invasion. And people didn't want to believe it, right? I mean, I think there wasn't there the, um, wasn't the German intelligence, didn't the German intelligence chief have to be uh, uh, evacuated from Kiev? Because he was actually there the night that the, the military campaign, the war started. I, I think I think that's correct. Um, yeah, he had, uh, I think the story goes that he was rushed out of Kiev. He was driving and, <laughs> and kind of had to walk to the, to the Polish border is the way that I understand the story. Like he couldn't fly so that's out. Oh, yeah, God. he couldn't fly out. He'd probably get shot out of the sky. I mean, um, the, but you know how ridiculous that is, right? I mean, like the Biden administration was saying for weeks, like this is going to happen probably. We're going to do everything we can to try to prevent it. But like, it, this seems like this is going to happen. And here's all the, you know, the false flag. And here's the evidence of what they're doing. And here's the, or, you know, like they kept, and, and so, you know, it's amazing people, it was like hope against hope, right? You actually had the Germans, you know, somebody who should never have been in the country on the, you know, the day or the eve of an invasion uh, was there because there was, you know, and you can't, you can't fault the U.S. for that. I mean, the U.S. made, you know, manifest explicit warnings about it. And I think that's been really, I think that's been fascinating. I mean, you're talking about like 21st century information conflict and you know the uses of intelligence um, for what I think in this case was a, a laudable and benign end, right? I mean, it also introduces all these fundamental questions about the, again, the, the ends or objectives of, a, of an intelligence agency because some people within that world, I mean, they wanna sit and collect forever, you know? Cause the idea is if you don't, if you don't release, you don't, you know, you don't blow your source potentially. But, you know, that's part of this, this tension, right? Where they made a decision that they, the administration made a decision that they were gonna err on the side of disclosure, even I'm sure with the potential or almost certain likelihood that some of the sources were blown because of the information that was released. And that I think is a real watermark. You know, we're talking about kind of like epochal moments in intelligence. Like, I think people will study this for a long time. That part of it is like epochal, I think. Um, because you almost have, again, if like <laughs> to go the, you know, uh, you know, Wario, Mario route again, if like 2003 Iraq was the Wario, then this was the Mario, right? Like it was truly the antithesis of, you know, it was, you know, 2003, it was um, push bad or politicized intelligence in the service of a war. And basically, you know, you know almost co-opt American media outlets to do it. Um, uh, knowingly or not, but like it, it happened, you know, and it happened to the, the most prominent news outlets in America. Um, and then in this case, it was release 
what I presume to be good and true intelligence, um, and I have no reason to doubt it, to prevent a war, or at least to uh, maneuver diplomatically to assemble a coalition to help deter and punish um, a clear military aggressor, right? That's a pretty amazing use of intelligence when you think about it and the release of intelligence. Um, so that's been fascinating on the US side. I mean, you brought up the question of like Russian military capabilities. And I think there's probably gonna be a lot of, um, you know, after action analyses about what the US intelligence community thought were Russian military capabilities and what their, um, how the US might, um, or another country might stack up against them in a conventional conflict versus what they have proven um, in terms of the difficulties that they've encountered. Um, but, you know, really important to underline that this is a, hopefully so far, and I think we can all knock on wood on this, like forever will be a limited conflict, a limited conventional conflict in one country, right? Um, and so we're talking about a very, uh, something that is both very broad in terms of Russian military, like this is a huge military campaign for the Russians, but it's also a conventional one. So, um, you know, that has to also be factored in. Um, and then, you know, on the other side, you know, there's, there's you know, Soldatov, the uh, uh, very reputable, you know, uh, Russian intelligence journalist, you know, has been reporting that there are like Russian intelligence officials who are being either arrested or fired or jailed or purged. Like it's unclear precisely, but like there are things that are occurring in Russia right now that I think are manifestations of anger to the discrepancy between the um, analytic conclusions about uh, how the war would go and how it has gone, both in terms of, I think of it's like, it's, it's length and the ease which, with which um, they thought they were gonna be able to, to prosecute it, but then also probably the, the political aspects to it, the political intelligence, which is like the Russians had and have like vast source networks all over Ukraine. And they must have believed, I mean, I think this is clear, they must have believed that big parts of the country, um, particularly Russian speaking parts of the East of Ukraine um, or parts of the country that are both, both Russian speaking and or heavily ethnic Russian would have been more amenable to uh, their advance. And the opposite has happened. Um, and I think they're, probably looking at, you know, if you want to look at the inverse again of the 2016 campaign here in the US where they expended very little money and they got a huge return, there's probably the opposite, which is happening, which is that people are within the Russian government right now are like, you had tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars. I don't know the amount. I'm, I'm, I'm obviously making that up, but like to develop source networks and over, over, decades or years in Ukraine. And you were supposed to have people all over the country in political positions, you know, municipal uh, government in the, in the 
the central government in you know nonpartisan technical in you know in you know in in the utilities in uh, in the military in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in the intelligence services and you were supposed to be able to give us accurate information about what they were doing and what the mood of the country was before the invasion and that's a massive failure on their part and that's probably going to reverberate for many many years for them um, the military losses will be one thing but the intelligence failures like we're looking at again almost like an inverse iraq war situation where they are going to have to do some very serious soul searching about their own misjudgments and capabilities um, and i think that's going to be a really fascinating um long-term thing for Russia, uh, Russia watchers. Something that kind of really sticks out for me for this conflict is how much paramilitary training the Ukrainian military, I guess it's the military that's receiving that training from the CIA. Um, do we consider it a, a success? Because I think just from observing it from the outside, it, it just looks like the Ukrainian military is just for lack of a better phrase, just killing it, right? They're stalling the Russian military outside of Kiev. Yeah. Um, some of the, the tow missile videos are just like, just mind blowing. I, I don't know if they've been edited to make it more TikTok friendly or more YouTube friendly, but some, some of that footage of just, you know, three guys taking out a, you know, a column of tanks is just kind of, it's incredibly impressive, but um, how much of that success can we tie back to the CIA program, the CIA training program, and how much of it is the Ukrainians just fighting, like, you know, defending their homeland and, you know, that sort of, you know, morale enhancing the fight, so to speak? Yeah, it's a multi-layered, it's a multi-layered question. I think, first and foremost, the credit has to go to the Ukrainian people themselves and the Ukrainian armed forces, which are, you know, they've had like a whole of society mobilization, which has been, I think, incredibly impressive from the outside. Um, um, the agency's training program. So I, I broke the, the, it broke the news of the existence of these, these programs. One program was based in the US and then undisclosed facility in the US where they would bring uh, they would bring Ukrainian special operations personnel and intelligence personnel to this undisclosed facility in the American South and they would train them there. Uh, and then there was also another training program on the front lines of Eastern Ukraine because you know Russia uh, Russian backed separatists um, uh, took over parts of a region known as the Donbass and uh, in 2014, and then the Russians came in and 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 helped them wage a kind of, you know, nasty war of attrition against uh, the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian military. And CIA paramilitaries also traveled to Ukraine shortly after um, that happened in 2014 and started doing trainings there. Um, I also want to just for a second say that it's important that there was also an overt training program by the US military that also involved special operations in a base in the country's far west in the in Ukraine. Um, that was completely overt, right? They, they trained people in, in um, you know, anti-tank missiles, um, the javelins, and in sniper training, and in all kinds of other stuff. So the US military um, 
I mean, the, it was it was a NATO program, so the U.S. military did it, but so did like other NATO allies. I mean, I think the some of the footage that I've seen was like the U.S. and the Lithuanians and the Canadians training Ukrainians in you know in in sniper operations, right? And the U.S. military just like they just put a little video of that on YouTube, you know, <laughs> on Twitter in you know 2018, I think. Um, so what's interesting is you know so the agency had its own you know secret secret program and the, the US military with NATO allies had an overt program and that has been ongoing since 2014 and um, without taking away um, from the Ukrainians own you know heroism bravery you know capabilities uh, I think it's had a really significant effect and I don't just say that because you know, acknowledging that my bias is in speaking to people from that world, they talk about that effect, right? So you have to be, you know, take what I'm saying with the appropriate grain of salt. And that like, that's the world that I, those, that's the world of people that I speak to. So they're going to, they're going to place some of the, you know, the, um, the, uh, the glory on, on what they did. But I think, I think completely realistically that it had a, a significant effect because you know they, they help professionalize this you know, the special operations units within the Ukrainian military that have been you know that are you know you're talking about a war in which you have these small units these kind of hunter killer teams that are going out at night and you know ambushing you know fuel fuel trucks fuel trucks <laughs> um, fuel trucks and um, you know, you have folks that have been taught how to do surveillance and evade um, evade detection from um, uh, you know Russian drones, and to ensure that their communications are uh, secure, and to do um, uh, to to perform uh, more efficient sniper operations, and to uh, you know, to learn how to, uh, to uh, uh, surreptitiously um, uh, travel to, uh, to get close to enemy positions. And like, you know, the professionalization of those units, which were already pretty good and were already kind of steeped in, in you know, Soviet era doctrine and, and giving them the American the way that it was phrased to me once was, you know, we taught them the American way of war right? Um, and I think that's been really advantageous, right? And in a way, you're seeing like what a very, what a professional military that then gets that additional training from that kind of these like elite people teaching elite people, like elite, you know, CIA paramilitaries, many of whom came from the world of JSOC, you know, and US military special operations, teaching elite military personnel from Ukraine. Um, I think that was really, really valuable. I think it's had an effect. Um, and I think also it's important to, to note that some of those folks have been engaged in a proxy war with the Russians since 2014. So you, know, you have people that got trained by the agency in like 2015, 2016 but then went back to the front lines in Eastern Ukraine and have been fighting the Russians since then. And like, yes, this is a very different war than that war, but like, 
they didn't start fighting the Russian military a week ago. They started eight years ago. Um, and they have been the beneficiaries of training by some very, very skilled uh, military operators from the US government, you know, since then. And um, so, yeah, it's hard to quantify, right? I mean, I, don't, I couldn't, you know, I, I, I was unable in my reporting to, you know, to ever establish like, oh, well, this unit that was trained by the CIA was a unit that, um, you know, killed a, you know, a, a Russian general, you know, but Russia's now lost apparently four generals, uh, four one-stars or one-star equivalents, which is incredible um, and devastating for the Russians. But, um, but I think, you know, with the big, big caveat that the credit needs to go first and foremost to the Ukrainian military. Um, I, I don't think there's any doubt that um, having those muscles and those skill sets built up over eight years um, has been a has been a difference maker in the in the current conflict. And then, of course, all the the billions of dollars in um, in equipment that we're uh, we're providing to the to the Ukrainians too, right? I mean, it's also a matter of just having the javelins, right? And having the anti-tank and, you know, uh, surface-to-air missiles, right? So I think, I think we've kind of reached the natural end of the conversation. I think we've covered a lot today. So uh, in addition to our traditional question, mm-hmm. uh, I, have an, I have another one that I want to pair with it. Um, so my first question is, do you have a favorite of meme or, or GIF or piece of content that has yeah. come out, like whenever you just, your, your favorite meme. And then uh, for the last, last question, you know, leave us with something to think about, a, a big thematic issue or, or something for me and the audience to kind of, to chew on, to think about and, and kind of leave us with a, a final word, so to speak. Oof. Wow. Uh, those are both good questions. Um, favorite meme. I don't know. I really like, I really like, you know, that Antonio Bandaras, like, uh, GIF where he's like looking at a computer. You know what I'm talking about? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah he's like looking at the computer going like, Ooh, right. Like he's like, kind of like, he sees something and it's so spicy that he has to look away. Um, I really like that one. That one's, um, that one's my, uh, that's the one that comes to mind right now. Um, Cause I feel like that a lot when I read other people's work, you know, um, sometimes when I read like a really great story, you know, from another reporter, I just, I'm just like, wow, damn, you know, that is like, that's amazing. Um, <sighs> something to think about. That's so, that is broad and that is tough. Um, I think that something that is worth thinking about is how when we look back on this era, um, we will see Ukraine as part of a story of Ukraine as a major through line in both American history, American foreign policy, and uh, world history. And you know, we're now eight years in to a war that exploded, but it started eight years ago. And 
much of US-Russia relations, which has a big effect on the global order, um, has been about Ukraine. And the 2016 election was partially about Ukraine. And, you know, the Donald Trump's campaign advisor worked for a pro-Russian Ukrainian uh, oligarch. Or, uh, and he, I don't know, if, actually, I don't know if he is an oligarch, but a, a pro-Russian presidential, um, uh, pro-Russian president. And some of the stuff that was being funneled to uh, Trump was about a quote unquote peace plan for Ukraine. You know, it was an attempt to influence the American government on Ukraine. And the first Trump impeachment was about Ukraine and was partially about um, Russian disinformation percolating to American government. Um, and now we have a, uh, the worst conflict in Europe since World War II um, about Ukraine. And so it's really hard to see the shape of history when you're living in it. Um, and it was impossible to predict the future. Um, but we, we are living through an era where Ukraine has become a central touch point for our time. And we don't know where the story ends. And that's banal and obvious. But I think we would do well to look back on where we've come in this story since 2014 to um, maintain a certain um, epistemological modesty about how we know where we're going, um, because it's very easy right now to be very triumphal about where things are going, um, because a lot of people are very happy watching the Russian military, understandably, um, uh, uh, trip and fall on its face. Um, but we've seen this story transmogrify before and we've seen Ukraine pop up in different ways and we don't know what the next manifestation will be so that's what I'd leave folks with very thoughtful words um, that was my guest Zach Dorfman uh, national security correspondent for Yahoo News uh, go out and read everything you can that he writes um, it's incredibly informative I don't even think we've touched on everything but um thank you so much for being a guest on the show thank you oh it was a great great pleasure and um thanks for letting me ramble on i need to go get a lozenge or something so. <laughs> <laughs>